Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, we're going to get into the Word. Um, I have a lot of content, a lot of notes for you today. So if you are the note-taking type, go ahead and warm up your, your notebook and your pencil or your pen or your phone, whatever you take notes on. Um, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to teach today. We are in week five of a series uh, where we've been discussing the book of First John. And we have titled this series ever so provocatively with life's most important question, am I going to heaven? Uh, and if after four weeks of listening to me yap, you do not know how to answer that question, um, I clearly need to do a better job preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, but hopefully over the last couple of weeks, you have been able to wrap your head around that question and you've, you've grown a bit from this content because again, that is a massively important cu- question that everybody in humanity needs to answer at some point. Is eternity real? And if so, where am I going to spend it? Uh, in fact, that is the motive of the author of this book. His desire is that as we read through the book of 1 John, we would ask ourselves that question. We would consider what he's writing and we would provoke to ask, hey, where is my eternity going to be spent? Um, we've been looking at this key text found at the conclusion of his letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where he writes, my whole purpose in writing this letter to you is simply this, that you who believe in God's son will know. Everybody say no. There we go, no beyond the shadow of a doubt. You have eternal life, the reality and not the illusion. His desire is that we would know that we know that we know that we know that we are on our way to heaven. Something that I desire, and my wife desires, our leadership team here desires, that everybody in this room who's called upon the name of Jesus would understand with certainty, I am on my way to heaven. And we've talked every week about this word know. I know there's some new folks in the room today, so let me catch you up to, up to speed. Uh, that word know in the Greek is the word edo, and it means to discover by examination or investigation. The author's intent here, John's intent, is that we would become detectives of our own life as we come to this book. That we would look at our lives and we would look at the content that he's written here and we would do a little bit of an examination. We would determine if the evidence of our life, if stacked up, supports our confidence in spending an eternity in heaven or if the evidence looks a little sketchy, that we would step back for a moment and that we would adjust course, that we would adjust our actions so that we could live according to the word of God and we could become eternally confident. And we've done just that for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Week one, we talked about living in the light or living in the darkness. Week two, we talked about what he said regarding obedience and this Hebrew word shema, which means to listen and to obey the word of God. In week three, we talked about having the right kind of love for God, looking at the four different Greek words for love. And then last week, I got to pour oil on a couple of people on stage. Uh, I think I saw, yeah, there's Dom. We poured it on Dom at the 11 o'clock service. And we talked about an anointing for truth. Let me remind you, you have been given an anointing at the time you came to Jesus. You received the Holy Spirit. You do not have to live a deceived life, but you know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We've all been anointed with that. Um, If you have missed any of those sermons, I wanna encourage you to go back. I really do think this series has been helpful for a lot of us. And I'd love for you to catch up to speed if you've missed any of those. Today, thank you, Jesus, we get to finally go into the third chapter of this book. I feel like it's been taking us a little bit of time to get there, but um, I am excited about the content today because again, I think it will be really helpful to some folks in the room. I know it was helpful to me even studying it because today we're going to talk about what I would consider to be one of the fundamental truths of Christianity, one of the core convictions, uh, something that all of us are going to have to wrestle with. It's a, a frequented battlefield in our faith, and that is our identity. We're gonna talk about our spiritual identities today. In fact, 
As we jump in, I wanna pose a question to you, which will serve as the title for today's chat. I wanna call this, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Come on, turn to somebody next to you. Give them a little attitude behind that mask and ask them, who do you think you are? Some of you have been waiting to ask that question from the car ride on the way to church, the way he treated you on the way here. Who do you think you are? Yeah, I know how you get in the car on the way here. I, I understand how that works. Who do you think you are? All right, we got a lot, of, a lot of verses to get through. So open your Bible, 1 John chapter three, and uh, let's get into the text. John says, see how very much our father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is who we are. Uh, but the people, yeah. <laughs> but the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we'll be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and that there is no sin in him. But anyone who continues to live in, in, in him will not sin. Yet anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. And we'll take a deep breath. Okay, next half of this portion of the scripture. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. Sorry about that. Who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are the children of God. Obviously, a lot of scripture there, nine verses worth, but I really believe that as we study this text today, kind of condense it down into his main thought, it's gonna mess with some people in the best way possible, and the Holy Ghost is gonna change you before you get out of this place. So, that's what, hey, you say Holy Ghost, and all of a sudden it wakes up every Pentecostal, and they're like, hey, oh, okay, that's good. Who do you think you are? Let's pray, and we're gonna go for it. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we have the ability to gather. What, a, what an incredible privilege that we took for granted for so long, and just being in your presence today, we just sense you are here among us. You're ready to do some work. I ask over the next couple of moments as we study your word, as we talk about our identity, that this would not be a man speaking from a stage, but Holy Spirit, you would speak to every single heart and that you would remind us of who we truly are today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, I am not sure when this happened, but it definitely happened in my lifetime. But there was a, a cultural moment where all of us seemingly collectively decided that we were going to switch from talking to one another face to face or over the phone to texting. Uh, you've probably noticed by now that the main form of communication in our culture is texting. That's how we predominantly communicate. In fact, there was a Gallup poll done uh, back in 2007 and then they've done it every single year since to ask, hey, what's the predominant form of communication you use? And people under 50 overwhelmingly responded that they text, that's the main way that they communicate with one another. How many text more than you talk to people on the phone? How many get terrified sometimes when your phone rings? You're like, I'm not picking that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know how that feels. Yeah, most of us, we, we, we use text as our main form of communication. It has not always been that way. Some of us are old enough to remember there was a day when we did not have cell phones. I know this is shocking information to some of you, but we haven't always had these little devices in our hands that, that we could text with. Back in the day, if you wanted to talk to somebody, you actually had to talk to them on the phone. And if you called and they were unable to pick up, if they were a doctor, or if they were a drug dealer, or if they were wealthy, they had something called a pager. You guys remember those? 
and you, you could page somebody with your phone number. I remember asking my mom at 12 years old if I could have a pager, and she's like, are you a drug dealer? And I'm like, I'm 12 years old. <laughs> no, I'm not a drug dealer. But we had to page somebody, and then if they could make their way to a pay phone, some of you might remember those as well, you could call you back when, you know, when they had time. But we didn't always have these little devices in our hands. We, in fact, even when cell phones were released, I don't know, came out, invented, uh, people still didn't text very much because it was incredibly inconvenient to text. How many remember those T9 days? We had to hit the button like eight times to get to the letter and then on to the next letter. It took like 20 minutes to send a text message out. So none of us texted. Uh, in fact, the, I used to sell cell phones when I was younger. And I remember, why are you laughing at that? It was a great job. Uh, <laughs> But I remember like trying to talk people into getting text messages on their cell phone plans. And they're like, why would I need anything like that? In fact, you just started giving them away with the cell phone plans. You'd get like 20 to 50 of them, but no one would ever use them on their cell phone plans. And I know that's shocking to some of you under the age of 30, because you're like, I've sent 50 text messages since you started talking a couple of moments ago. So I get it, but this was the world we lived in. These days, it's unlimited text because everybody texts everybody all the time. And there's some benefits to that for sure. Like, I like using text because, you know, I don't have to talk to somebody and give, a, you know, all the formalities and, you know, all the unnecessary conversation. Just, hey, send the data, tell me. I know that sounds really rude, but, you know, just you can get right to the, right to the point via text. But there are some disadvantages to texting. Mainly, if you are a predominant text communicator, it becomes very easy sometimes to misinterpret what somebody says on the other side of that text. Has that ever happened to you before? You get a text message from someone or you send a text message out and they completely misinterpret what you were saying and you don't know if you should be offended or angry or, or what because you're like, ah, why would you send something like that to me? Yeah, it's very easy to misinterpret text. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, we had a guy on our youth team who came up to me one Wednesday night before the youth service and he said, hey, uh, hey Tim, can we, can we talk for a couple minutes? And I'm like, yeah, man, what's going on? And he said, are you, are you mad at me? I said, no, man, I'm not mad at you. He's like, did I do something to offend you? I said, no, no, we're, we're totally fine. What gave you the impression that I was angry? And he said, well, we've been texting a lot this week. And I noticed that when we were texting, you didn't put any emojis or LOLs or smiley faces or winky faces or ha-ha-has at the conclusion of your text. And so I just didn't know if everything was okay between us. And I'm like, let me get this straight. <laughs> I didn't put a winky face or a laughy cry face and you thought that I was angry with you? And he's like, yeah, man, I just was very robotic and I thought maybe you were mad. And I'm like, you are a grown freaking man and you need me to put an emoji inside of a text message? Dr. Insecure over here, you know what I mean? So he literally, straight face, he looked at me afterwards and he said, do you think maybe this week, like if we text, you think you could just throw a couple smiley faces in there or something just to... Like, whatever you need, buddy, to make you feel secure, absolutely. So if I've ever text messaged with you and I've gone over the top with my emojis, I got a little PTSD I'm working through right now and I just wanna make sure you know, like, hey, everything between us is cool, we're good, all right? Everything is fine. Because, I mean, think about it. When, when all you have is a text, you don't hear the tone. You don't hear how somebody is saying something. And when all you have is the text, sometimes it's very easy to misinterpret. And I think as we look at this text in the book of 1 John chapter 3, this could become a very classic example of easily misinterpreted text. As you look at this portion of scripture, it can begin to rub you the wrong way. If, if you got this in a text message from somebody today, you would be begging for some emojis. You would be asking for a smiley face or a ha ha ha. Because 
it seems as though John is very, very angry about the way people are living their lives. He makes a couple of offensive statements, statements like, anyone who sins does not know God or understand who he is. Well, I sin. Uh, And if people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. There's a good one. Anyone who does not live righteously does not belong to God. And all of these statements, one after the other after the other, like even if you put a smiley face at the end of that, (laughs) I'm not so sure it would sit very well. It might rub you the wrong way. But we must be incredibly careful about how we approach scripture sometimes. We need to be careful about how we look at this text. Because if we look at this text through the lens of an insecure youth leader, it will rub us the wrong way. But if we understand the heart and the intention of the author and we read it contextually, suddenly this text takes on an entirely different meaning. Because what John is doing here is he's not heaping on condemnation and trying to make people feel guilty about sin and if you really love God, you would live differently. It's not what he's saying. Rather, what John is tapping into here, again, is one of the core convictions of Christianity. It is a fundamental truth that he believed the first century church desperately needed to be reminded of and I believe many of us need to be reminded of today. And if you are a note taker, here's what, if I could condense it down to a single statement, here is what John is saying. Our actions are the byproduct of our perceived identity. Our actions are the byproduct of our perceived identity. I've said this many times from the stage and I will continue to say it as long as I'm the pastor here. The way you see yourself drastically affects the way you live your life. The the image of that person you see on the other side of that mirror, it changes everything about your day-to-day doings. I am no counselor, and many of you who have sat down with me for counsel, you know that statement is true. I am a horrible counselor. My advice generally consists of stop being an idiot. That's how most of it works. But any counselor would tell you, in fact, we have a couple of them here at the church, hey, you must see yourself correctly. You must see yourself through the right lens because the way you see yourself drastically affects the way you live your life. In fact, that's not just a humanistic idea. That's not something to make us feel better and you know, live better. In fact, that is Bible. All throughout scripture, you will see that principle replete all throughout there. The way you see yourself will drastically affect the way you live your life. Here's an example of it. Proverbs 23, verse seven. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon writes, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And you've heard that before. Famous proverb. As you think about yourself, so you shall become. The way you see yourself will ultimately determine the way you live your life. As you thinketh, so you liveth. (laughs) Our identity is so vitally important. And this truth is not lost on John. John. John understands this very well, which is why he's getting incredibly aggressive in this portion of scripture about reminding us of who we truly are. He understands that identity is imperative to living a life that Christ has called us to live. So back to the text for a moment. If we begin to dissect this portion of scripture, I think, in my, at least in my opinion, it reads a little bit like a sandwich, if you will. How I many like a good sandwich? Yeah. It's getting close to lunchtime. There's submarine center down there in West Portal. I like the uh, Italian there. A little mortadella, capicola, provolone. Forget about it. It's a good sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> this is like an identity sandwich for you, okay? At the top of this portion of scripture... John begins to establish some identity statements. He begins to speak over who we are. At the bottom of this sandwich, again, 
he reminds us of who we truly are. And in the middle of this, this scripture, in this nine verse uh, passage, he gets to the meat, if you will. He gets to the meat of what it looks like when we truly embrace and we embody those identity statements. He shows us how it will affect the way we live our lives. Unless, of course, you're a vegan, in which case it's the broccoli of your sandwich or whatever it is that you eat. So these identity statements are imperative, though, to understand contextually what he's talking about. Here's the first one. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. He calls us his children, and that is what we are. He goes on to say in verse 9 that we have been born into the family of God. So identity statement number one, for those of you who are writing these things down, you are a child of God. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. It's who you are. He intentionally reiterates you're a child of God. It is who you are. Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time explaining this and, and teaching about it. My wife preached a brilliant message about four or five weeks ago on this subject when she, in our Reset series when she talked about prayer and how we have the incredible privilege as children of God to approach him as our father. And if you did not listen to that, I, I strongly encourage you to go back and take a listen to that message. It'll give you much more context about this statement. But for the sake of brevity, let me say this. It is absolutely crucial as a Christian that you identify as a member of the family of God. As a believer of Jesus Christ, you must be able to look at that person in the mirror and say, I am a child of God. It is an absolute make or break for your faith. And that's not just some kind of preacher talk where I'm trying to exaggerate a point and you know, make you feel like this is really important. No, this is crucial. And, and if you don't think that I'm exaggerating a little bit, just let me offer something for consideration for just a moment. If being a child of God was not that important, why does it seem that the family seems to be the greatest area of attack by the enemy over the last couple of generations? Think about what's taken place just in the last 50 or 60 years with the family. The deconstruction of the nuclear family. Generational curse of fatherlessness. It wasn't always that way. But over the last few generations, it seems like the enemy is focusing his attacks on the family. Could it be that the enemy wants to destroy something in the natural because if he can sway your perception of what a family is supposed to look like, if it can make you disassociate yourself as a child of your natural father, maybe it would affect the way you, you begin to adopt yourself into the family of God. Maybe it would completely distort the way you see yourself as a child of a good heavenly father. No, he is destroying. I, I would submit to you that one of the greatest attacks of this generation, in fact, I was just talking, talking about this with my buddy Eric the other day, one of the greatest attacks is the area of the family, specifically the area of fatherlessness. Because the enemy does not want you to smile when you hear you're a child of God and he's a good father. He wants you to wince because of your bad earthly experience. But listen to me very carefully, child of God. It does not matter what you've experienced on this side of eternity. I know that some of us have had some tragic situations. I know some of us have grown up in some difficult family situations, but it does not rob you of your identity. You are still a child of God and he is still a good, good father as the song declares. You are still a child. And he's not like the broken earthly father that many people experience. He's a good father. 
He will stand by your side regardless of what you walk through. He'll not leave you in a valley. He will enter that valley with you and walk through it. He will affirm you. He will protect you. He will speak life over you. He won't walk away when things get difficult. No, he will stand shoulder to shoulder and fight those battles right alongside of you. And listen, no one can rob you from that. John said in verse nine, you have been born into this. I got a couple of daughters, guess what? No one's gonna ever rob them of being my daughters. There is some DNA that runs through their veins that regardless of what they do on this earth will not change their identity. Those are my kids. You can see it in their features. One of them has big ears just like me. Sorry about that, Livy. <laughs> but it doesn't matter what she does, she's still my daughter. And it doesn't matter what you do, you are still a member of the family of God. And the same way when you exited your mother's womb, you had a whole life ahead of you, the moment you said yes to Jesus, he said that you were born again. You now have a brand new chapter you're entering into in your life and you have a new opportunity to walk in the things of God. And in the same way, sorry if this is gross, you came out of the waters of your mother's womb, guess what? When you came up out of the waters of baptism, Romans chapter six says, you are put to death the old version of yourself and there is a new creation that comes out of those waters. You are a child of God. It's who you are. And John reminds us of this in this text. He says, you have to remember. He says at the beginning, says at the end, you are a child of God. It is who you are. Identity statement number two. Here's what he says in verse seven. He says, dear children, child of God. <laughs> child of, I'm a child of God. <laughs> it's like I got a little, little preacher there. Don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous. Identity statement number two. You are righteous. You are righteous. Now you notice, when I said I'm a child of God, a lot of people in the room said, yes, amen. <laughs> when I said you're righteous, it's a little quieter. One guy up there got it. <laughs> Why is that? Why does it seem like we have such a difficult time associating our identity with that word? Even when I say it, it'd be for many people, it'd be almost impossible to go, yeah, that's, that's who I am. But almost like feel arrogant to say that, like, yeah, I'm righteous. Righteous. <laughs> <laughs> There's this broken thing in our humanity that causes us to think that for some reason, our righteousness has something to do with our track record. And the reason that so many people have a difficult time attributing their identity to that phrase is because they think about what happened last week. They think about what happened last month. They think about how they've been living their life for the last 10 years. I, I don't qualify for righteousness. That's because in your brain, righteousness is something you achieve by good behavior. But John would suggest otherwise, along with all of the other New Testament writers. And in fact, I think I've even used this phrase from the stage, but I will use it again because it is true. But we must understand, if you're taking notes, write this down. Righteousness is not achieved, it is received. Righteousness has nothing to do with what you do. It is who you are. It was received. Let me back that up with some Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not, not so that we might feel righteous. Not so that we might achieve righteousness. N- not so that we could experience righteousness, but that we could become righteous. Become is an identity statement. He knew him who knew no sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter three says it like this. For now God has shown us a way to be made righteous that is not found in keeping all the rules and living a perfect life. We are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everybody who believes, regardless of who you are. So for all of you listening, watching all of that, regardless of who you were before you walked into this room, regardless of what you did before you knew Jesus, and hey, regardless of what you did after you came to know Jesus, regardless of your track record, your past, your progress report, none of it changes your identity. You are righteous because there is somebody who took your place as, an, as a righteous sacrifice for your sin so that you could become what you could never become on your own. The biblical word for this, and, and I learned this from my extensive years in Bible college that I shared with you about last week, is imputed righteousness. What is that? It sounds painful. Imputed righteousness. And what it means is that you have received something that you did not deserve and that you could not accomplish on your own. Here's the narrative. Jesus left heaven and he came to earth and he lived for 33 years. And during those 33 years, he faced every single temptation that you were ever gonna face on this side of of heaven. Consider that for just a moment. Every single temptation that you face, Jesus faced, but he never fell prey to temptation. He lived a sinless, perfect life. And then at the age of 33, he gave up his perfect life on a cross. And even though he didn't deserve it, he took upon himself all of humanity's sin, past, present, and future. All of your failure, all of your loss, all of your pain, all of your sickness was poured out on the sinless son of God, but it was for a purpose. He took upon himself all of our unrighteousness so that he could give us in exchange all of his righteousness. He imputed his perfection to us. He achieved what none of us could achieve in and of ourselves so that we could receive something that only he was capable of achieving. We received his righteousness. And now because you've received the righteousness of God, you have right standing with God. Because of your track record, you stood no chance coming to the Father. There's no reason you should ever be bold when you came before God and pray the kind of prayers that you pray. But because God doesn't see you, he sees the sacrificed son. He sees the blood of Jesus every time you approach him. You can come boldly before the throne of grace where you can obtain mercy and you can ask audaciously for healing and for freedom and for change and for wholeness and for blessing because it's not about what you've done, it's about what's already been done on your behalf. You are righteous. It's who you are. Now, those two identity statements change everything about this text. They they change everything about the way we dissect what John is saying here. Because when we understand that John is dealing with identity, no longer do we read this through a condemning lens, but we see it as a form of affirmation. No longer is this text, well, if you sin, you're a child of the devil. Okay. No longer is it, well, if you're going to call yourself righteous, you better buck up and live a righteous life, buddy. It's not that at all. No, quite the contrary. When we understand what John is saying about our identity, it completely shifts the tone of this text. And we realize what John is saying is, hey, you're a child of God. 
You're the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And when you understand your identity as a member of the family of God and as a righteous son and daughter, it will completely and radically change the way you live your life. You don't have to try to figure it out and earn righteousness. You already are righteous. And when I understand that I'm righteous, I begin to live my life as the righteous people do. When I understand that I am a child of God, I begin to live my life like the way the child of God should. These are identity statements. And it's imperative, it's critical that we can associate those statements with our identity. But understanding this this text doesn't just change the tone of it. It also forces us to do something rather uncomfortable. It forces us to Edo. It forces us to examine, to investigate our lives a little bit. Back to our thesis. Our actions are the byproduct of our perceived identity. Now, if that's true, then our actions are telling us something, aren't they? Our actions are revealing something to us about who we think we are. I'll say it like this. Our actions don't identify, but they do inform. I am not what I do, but what I do tells me a lot about who I think I am. So let me pose the question that we posed at the beginning one more time, this time with a little bit of context. Who do you think you are? It's not a complicated question to answer. You don't have to do some deep investigative work. All you have to do is look at the way you're living your life right now because your actions are telling you who you think you are. So based on the way that you are living your day-to-day life, What is it telling you about who you think you truly are? Hey, the way that you carry yourself sexually, what is it telling you about your perceived identity? Your your fears of failure, your fear of abandonment, the way that you became codependent, what is it telling you about the way you see yourself? the toxic relationships that you run back to, the way you project your anger onto other people, your confidence, your lack thereof, the way you speak about other people to make yourself feel better, the way you talk about yourself when nobody else is listening. What is it telling you about the identity you've bought into? Because it's revealing something to you. It's telling you who you think you truly are. And if you don't like what it's telling you, if this moment in the sermon is the most uncomfortable moment for you because you don't like the identity that you've bought into, then in our last couple of moments together, we better figure out how we got here so that we never get back to that place. Because who you're acting like is not who you truly are. That is not who you are. You are a child of God and you are the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And we need to get to the core of this problem. In, uh, in preparation for this sermon, I was doing a little bit of light reading about brainwashing, and uh, <laughs> as one does. <laughs> I told the first service, I was talking to my buddy Carlos, we were in a Bible reading plan earlier this week, and uh, we were talking about something, and I was telling him about an article I was reading online, and he said, 
I just want to see what your search history is because sometimes you quote the most random stuff like it's got to be the weirdest collection of things that you read. And I'm like, well, that's what I have to do when I communicate every single week. Look for the random information online. Uh, it's an endless rabbit hole. It's great. But I was reading about brainwashing. And the reason I was reading about brainwashing is because I, I stumbled upon an article that I think many of us might be able to resonate a little bit with as we discuss this subject of identity. Uh, there's a gal, her name is Julia Latin, and she was writing about the process whereby people during the Korean War who became prisoners of war were brainwashed by their enemies. And as I read this, I'm like, gosh, this is, this is what's happening. Look at what she writes. She says, uh, these three steps accompany you know, the, the, the prisoners of war and their, their brainwashing tactics. Number one, there is an assault on the identity. First, you must be convinced that you are not who you think you are. This is a systematic attack on a person's sense of self and core belief system. The brainwasher denies everything that makes that person who they are. You are not a soldier. You are not a man. You are not defending freedom. The person is under constant and repetitive attack for days, weeks, or months to the point that they become exhausted, confused, and disoriented. In this state, their beliefs are questioned. Step two, once a person questions their identity, it begins to be reshaped. New identity formation statements are made. You are bad. You are worthless. You are a failure. When the, while the identity crisis is setting in, the brainwasher is simultaneously creating an overwhelming sense of guilt in their target. He repeatedly and mercilessly attacks the subject for any wrong they've committed, large or small. He may criticize the target for everything from his beliefs to the way he eats too slowly. The subject begins to feel a general sense of shame that everything they do is wrong. Finally, self-betrayal. The subject agrees with all of the lies. I am bad. I am a failure. Once the subject is disoriented and drowning in guilt, the brainwasher forces him to denounce himself and anyone like him by threatening the continuance of the mental attack. This betrayal of self, beliefs, and of people they feel a sense of loyalty to confirms the shame and solidifies the loss of the target's identity. Does that sound familiar to anybody else but me? <laughs> an assault on the identity, a heaping on of guilt. And once I've gotten you to question who you are, I own you. I can make you do whatever I want you to do. Friends, that is the tactic of your adversary today. Maybe you didn't realize it. Let's pull back the curtain on the natural. Let's get a glimpse into the spirit a little bit today. You have a very real and present enemy that is doing everything he possibly can to brainwash you, to assault who God says you are, to heap on guilt and shame. And once he gets you to question who God says you are, when you buy into a false identity, he can control the way you live your life. But if you find yourself anywhere on that continuum today, Maybe you walked in here and you're in step one. Your identity has been assaulted and you are becoming exhausted trying to please God with your actions. Or maybe you've entered into the second phase and you feel guilty and you feel ashamed and all you want to do is run and hide from God or the people of God. Or maybe you're in full-blown deception in the third stage and you don't know who you are any longer. I am here today by Jesus Christ to remind you you are not who you think you are. You are not broken. You are not a mistake. You are not a failure. You are the righteousness of Christ Jesus, and you are a child of the Most High God. Yeah, you might have a track record that says otherwise, but you are not what you do. Your actions do not define you. Your heavenly Father defines you. And nothing can rob you of that today. 
No failure, no pit you've made for yourself, no hole that you've dug. None of it can rob you of the fact that Jesus already paid the ultimate price and he does not need to go back to the cross a second time for you. You are not so special that your failure is different than anybody else's and you are disqualified from what he says about you. No, if you've got breath in your lungs and you've got the Holy Ghost in your heart, you are the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You are a child of God and that is who you are, period. You gotta remember these things. And yeah, I get some claps and people get excited, but listen, this has to go beyond a 35 minute message on a Sunday morning. Like it's cool that we're in this environment together and maybe I've encouraged you a little bit, but you need a tactic, friend, if you're gonna be able to combat the enemy. If he's gonna constantly assault your identity and attempt to brainwash you, you need something to put in your pocket and take home with you today so that you do not end up in a broken space again. So as we conclude, and the band's gonna come so that I shut up, we need to give you some strategy before you go. I'm gonna give you a very simple way to fortify your identity, to ensure that you don't buy into the lies any longer. And the phrase I'm about to give you, I'm warning you, is ridiculous, it's dumb, it's some silly little preacher phrase, but it's so dumb that you might just remember it, okay? So here's your take home. When the enemy tries to come and brainwash you, here's what you need to remember. There is a lie for every lie. Make sure you look at the screen when you write that down or you're gonna spell it wrong. There is a lie for every lie. Let me explain. Some of you might remember this from your high school chemistry class. This is a bar of soap. It's Dove. It's for sensitive skin because I'm a sensitive man. And the main ingredient in this bar of soap, main ingredient in much of the soap you use, is lye, L-Y-E, to make soap soap. When the enemy comes and he tries to brainwash you, you need one of these. You need to be able to wash your mind so that you don't get brainwashed. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter five that our minds are washed by the power of God's word. Say that with me. Our minds are washed by the power of God's word. Apparently, there is a supernatural ability of this Bible to cleanse your mind from any lies the enemy tries to throw at you. And, and it's not that, you know, reading the Bible is good for your brain. This isn't like, okay, really, that's so simple. Like, just read the Bible. It'll make the bad things go away. It's not what I'm saying. I mean, specifically, there is a truth in that word for every single lie that the enemy tries to throw at you. There is chapter and verse, a lie for every single lie. Think about any lie the enemy tries to throw at you. What has he said about you? What lie has he tried to throw at you? You're condemned based on your, your past. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm a failure. No, Romans 8 also says that you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I'm unlovable. Well, Jeremiah 31 says that he's loved you with an everlasting kind of love. I'm never gonna amount to anything. Deuteronomy 28, I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. I'm never gonna be able to do anything. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. I'm addicted, you're freed. I'm cursed, you're blessed. 
Find any lie the enemy tries to throw it your way. There is a scripture to combat that lie. And let me remind you today, the devil is not original with his lies. All he does is put them on repeat. He does not have an original thought in his brain. He doesn't even have a brain. That's right. Picking a fight with the devil today. The lies that he throws at you are the same lies he threw at you last week and last month and last year. So instead of buying into the same lie over and over and over and over again and subjecting ourselves to that chair as he attempts to brainwash us, maybe it's time we begin to find some arsenal in the Word of God and we begin to memorize, no, he always tells me this, so here's what the Word of God has to say about that. So that next time the enemy comes to you and says, who do you think you are? You can stand up confidently by the power of the Holy Spirit and you can say, I am a child of the Most High God. I am the righteousness of Christ Jesus. I am more than a conqueror. I'm the head. I'm not the tail. I'm above. I'm not beneath. I am blessed. I am chosen. I'm a royal priesthood. You got to know who you are today. Because when you know who you are, it will drastically affect the way you live your life. Ultimately, your actions are the byproducts of the way you see yourself. You want to change the way you're living your life? Change what you begin to say about yourself. Buy into the right identity and it will drastically change the way Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and we conclude. I want to pray for everybody here. Two groups. Group one, I want to pray for anybody who is a child, is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. They've been born into the family of God, but you've bought into some lies. I want to take just a moment as we conclude today, and I want to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you clearly, remind you of the truth. Jesus, thank you for your kids. Thank you for your family here. Thank you that as we sit in this space, we have the ability to hear your voice. You said, my sheep will hear my voice. They will know what I sound like. Right now in this concluding moment, I just pray that every person who has the Spirit of God alive on the inside of them, they would hear your voice, they would know your truth. Every lie of the enemy be silenced in the name of Jesus and the truth of your word be spoken over their heart chosen, you're forgiven, you're known, you're mine. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. May those be more than glib statements from scripture. May they be the truth that we're convinced of today. And before we conclude, I, I do want to take a moment and pray for anyone who might be here today and say, man, I, I hear what you're saying about being a child of God and born again. I have not had that moment. I've been away from God, I've been at a distance. I don't feel like I'm a part of the family today and I, I know that I need to run back to Him and make a decision to follow Him so that I can be counted among those children of God that you're speaking about. If that's you today, this is the most important, important part of the service. This is what we're here for, all of us, to make space for you to come close to Jesus and to follow Him for the rest of your days. If you're here and you're far from God and you don't want to stay at a distance any longer, I want to pray a simple prayer with you. But before I pray that, I just want to ask if you'd be so bold. No one's looking around. It's between you and Jesus. But I just want to know who I'm praying with. If you need to make a decision to follow Jesus today, would you quickly look up at me and lift your hand so that I know who I'm praying with? <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, man, right there. Got you at the back. Awesome. Anybody else? Not in a rush here. Yeah, right on, got you, thank you. 
Oh, so cool. Come on, can we just thank God before we even pray for those that are making a decision to come home today? So cool. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray a very simple prayer. You can pray this in your heart. But as soon as we say amen, this entire room is gonna erupt. Even people watching in their living room are gonna scream at the top of their lungs because the Bible says that all of heaven celebrates when even one person comes home to Jesus. So pray this after me if you're making this decision. Jesus, thank you for meeting me today. Thank you for giving your life for me. Today, as a response, I give my life back to you. I wanna be counted among your children. I wanna follow you all my days. I wanna change the way I'm living. And so the, the best way I know to do that is to identify as one of your kids, as the righteous that you've called me. So today I make that conscious decision to follow you. I believe you are who you say you are. And I choose to follow you. Help me to be your disciple from this day forward until that day where I see you in heaven. Because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is where I'm going after today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, at the top of your lungs with every bit of your passion, let's just thank God. Awesome, awesome. God, I love church. All right. Listen, if you just prayed that prayer, even if you didn't lift your hand, um, I want you to take a moment and do something very important before you can, we conclude here. Uh, there's a Next Steps card either behind you or in front of you in one of the chairs. And before you get out of here, would you do us a huge favor? Put a little bit of information about yourself on the back of that card and check the box that says, I made a decision to follow Jesus today. Uh, we would love to get a free Bible into your hands. You can take this right out to our Connect table. Some folks there that wanna celebrate with you. Uh, but not only will they give you a free Bible, they're gonna tell you about something called First 40. We truly believe, and this is biblical, 40 is a Bible number. The first 40 days of your journey are so, so important. It's where you establish patterns and begin to start this journey strong. And so we've got kind of a personal coaching network of folks that wanna teach you how to follow Jesus during those first 40 days, how to pray, how to read the Bible, what your next steps are. In fact, the one that they're gonna tell you about most importantly is the second box that says, says, I want to get water baptized. Uh, again, I used a very awkward illustration about that earlier with you coming from the water of your mother's womb, but it is a supernatural moment where the old version of you passes away and a new, a new version comes up out of those waters. We water baptize every single week here at the Father's House. And if you've not been baptized, check that box again, take it back to the connect table. For those watching online, there's a link right below the video uh, and you can click that, click that as well. And again, we'll get a Bible to you and get you started on the journey. Uh, why don't we stand to our feet? Um, for those of you that are heading over to Discover, we'll be over there in about 10, 15 minutes or so. Feel free to hang out for a few. Uh, anybody else, we would love to pray for you. If you need prayer before you get out of here, you can come this direction and our prayer team is gonna be lined up here across the front. Otherwise, thanks for coming to the fun service, the 11 o'clock service, and we will see you guys next week. Have a good Sunday. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.